Welcome again to Bible Center. Again, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great having you with us. It's my privilege to introduce our scripture reader, Mr. Troy McClung. Troy serves as the chairman of our deacon board. Uh, Troy and his wife Kelly have been here for 12 years. They have two sons, and as a dad with two daughters, I'm always leery of a dad with two sons. Uh, but I'm glad to have Troy read the scriptures for us. Uh, let's dive into God's word together. Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Troy. We'll begin this morning with a riddle. We'll begin with a riddle. I hope you're awake. It begins like this. One evening, a man left home on foot and started to run. Shortly after, he decided to turn left. Then he made another left turn and then another. He quickly returned home, but staring him in the face were two masked men waiting on him. Who were the two masked men? Now, if you know the answer, please don't share. Uh, if you know the answer, wait for the person beside you. I'll read it again a little slower and see if you can guess the riddle. One evening, a man returned home on foot and started to run. Shortly after, he decided to turn left. Then he made another left turn and then another. He quickly returned home, but staring him in the face were two masked men. Who were the masked men? How many of you think you know the answer already? All right, a few of you. This picture, a picture is worth a thousand words. Here's the answer. Throw the picture up on the screen. Nothing like dramatic effect. There it is. So one evening, a man left home on foot and started to run. Shortly after, he turned left. Then he made another left turn and then another. He quickly returned home, but staring him in the face were two masked men. 
This illustration reminds us that perspective is everything. With the right perspective, we can easily interpret a riddle. And with the right perspective, we can easily interpret God's word. This morning, my goal is to explain what the Bible is all about in about 30 minutes or less. My goal is to highlight three themes that we see from Genesis to Revelation throughout the entire Bible, of course, and then to give one practical application that you can take home and use this week. If you have your outline, feel free to follow along, or you can follow along in the app. What is the Bible all about? If you look at the top of your outline, you'll see, first of all, already printed, that the Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. Now, that's no surprise. This is a church. Uh, We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the Bible. We joke, some of our children's uh, teachers will joke that really there's only two answers in Sunday school, and that is Jesus or the Bible. Maybe if you want to throw in God and you'll get the right answer. Reminds me of the kid that was sitting in the Sunday school class one day, and the teacher asked him, what has a furry tail, eats acorns, and climbs trees? And the young man said, well, normally I would say squirrel, but since I'm in church, I'm going to go with the Bible. The Bible's got to be the answer. So, of course, Jesus is what the Bible is all about. Uh, But that isn't something that we made up. That isn't something that started in a seminary or in a church council. But Jesus himself said that the Bible is all about him. We see it in the story that Troy just read. Imagine the scene. You've got two men on the road to Emmaus. They're sad, they're discouraged, they're depressed. Uh, They're like two men who've lost everything, maybe in a bad gambling spree. And as they begin to walk, they're discouraged, they're sad, they're downcast, and they're trying to make sense of the events in Jerusalem over the last week. These two men were probably there throwing palm leaves when Jesus uh, entered the city. They had high hopes that Jesus was going to save them from Rome. He was going to rescue them, redeem Israel once for all. But they were sad because Jesus had been crucified. Picture as Jesus runs up beside the two men, and he asks them the question, what are you so sad about? What's caused you to be so upset And one of the men looks at Jesus, maybe Cleopas. We don't know the other's name, but Cleopas said to Jesus, where were you last week? Have you lived under a rock? Do you not know that Jesus, uh, the Christ, was crucified and is dead? And he asks the question, perhaps, we just use our imagination, well, why was he crucified? Jesus says, they still don't know he's Jesus. Why was he crucified? You can picture maybe the dialogue going back and forth as they said, well, uh, he wasn't crucified for any crime, but the man did so many miracles. They accused him of blasphemy, but but I don't know how he, he couldn't be anything else than what he claimed to be. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He caused people who couldn't walk to be able to walk again. He turned water into wine. He spoke with great authority, but they crucified him. You can imagine as Jesus continues down the road on the seven-mile journey, Luke 24 uses an interesting word. It says that Jesus called them fools. He said, you fools. 
Now, we like an image of Jesus that is meek and mild, and we see that a number of places in the New Testament, Jesus with children, Jesus pulling children to himself, kissing babies. Certainly, that is the grace of our Lord. But there are times where Jesus spoke frankly, and in Luke 24, he speaks frankly. He says, you who are foolish of heart. In the Greek, that's a nice way of saying, you who are thick-headed. You're, you're crazy. You're idiots. Don't you get it? And, and Luke tells us that he begins to unpack the Old Testament from Genesis to the very end and share with them how that the entire Old Testament was about Jesus. Now, as he's saying this, they still don't understand who he is. They don't recognize him. And there's a lot of different theories as to why. Uh, one theory is that maybe he was wearing a hood and they just couldn't recognize him. I mean, maybe. One theory is that in their grief, they were so sad through their tears, they, they really just couldn't focus on Jesus or they thought there's no way this could be Jesus. There seems to be some spiritual blindness going on as well that the Lord didn't allow them at first to recognize who he was. And Jesus takes them through the Old Testament prophecies. There's over 300. So this would have taken the full seven miles as he unpacks about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And by the time they get to their house in Emmaus, the two travelers would have thought, well, maybe Jesus is alive somewhere. I mean, maybe he really is. These ladies told us we thought they were crazy, but they said they visited the tomb and nobody was in the tomb, so maybe he really is alive. And they invite Jesus in for dinner. It was getting late. It was never safe to travel after dark. So Jesus comes in for dinner. And Luke tells us that as they sit down, their hearts are starting to warm. They're beginning to think maybe Jesus really is alive somewhere. He breaks the bread, bows for prayer, and whenever he says amen, just picture as they look up at the table and it hits them like a ton of bricks. It's like lightning strikes their heart. They look right at him and, you're Jesus and you're in my house. Now, I know a little bit of how they felt, just on a small, much, much small scale. The first time I met Lynn Swan. I was in Pittsburgh at Swickley, Pennsylvania at a YMCA, and I was coming in, or I was leaving, and, and some one gentleman, a tall gentleman, opened the door, and as he was coming in, I was going out, and I just looked at him to say, thank you, sir, and I look right at him, <laughs> and I said the most logical thing I could think of as an educated pastor, ordained minister, you're Lynn Swan. He said, last time I checked. And the disciples, these two men, you're Jesus. And then it says he vanished from their sight. Oh, he appeared again shortly thereafter, probably appeared multiple times, maybe even hundreds of times back and forth in the 40 days after his resurrection, before he ascended into heaven. But I love what Jesus did on the road. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 is the key to why we have church. It's why we have Bible studies. It's why we have sermons, why we have adult Bible fellowships and, and community groups in part. In verse 27, notice what Jesus did. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. Jesus did a Bible study. The Bible from start to finish is all about Jesus. In the next few minutes, we're going to look at three themes about Jesus that Luke highlights in Luke 24. And again, they all point back to him. First of all, the Bible reminds us that Jesus, uh, the Bible is all about Jesus who came to redeem us by grace. Number one, Jesus came to redeem us by grace. Notice verse 21 with me. The disciples, these two men, look at Jesus and they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Number one, Jesus came to redeem us by grace. This theme of redemption runs from start to finish. If you wanted to summarize the Bible in one word, you could summarize it in this word, redeem or redemption or salvation. We see the word redeem used even in modern contexts, like somebody might say the Cavaliers redeemed themselves on Friday night. Uh, it's going to take a lot more than that to finish them off, but um, sure, they may have redeemed themselves. We'll say he redeemed himself through his good works. The, the husband redeemed himself by buying his wife roses, but, but this word is much deeper. It means to release from slavery. These two guys thought that Jesus was going to be their general. They were looking for a general, not a savior. And Jesus reminds them, I came to die on the cross for your sins. You don't need a general, you need a savior. When we think about what we look for in life, have you ever noticed that sometimes we can be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, looking for somebody to give us physical salvation but not looking for someone to give us spiritual salvation? Why do you come to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you get in the Word? Why do you attend an adult Bible fellowship? Or, or why do you even follow Christianity? You ever think about that? You know, there's times in my life when I come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. I come to Jesus because I, I think he'll give me 10 reasons Jesus will give me a happy vacation. Or I come to Jesus if I pray, he'll get me out of a jam. And certainly he does those things. But more importantly, Jesus looks at these two men on the road to Emmaus and he says, I didn't come to redeem you from Rome. I came to redeem you from sin. What is it that you're looking for? To Jesus to give you today. Maybe you think, well, if I come to church enough, Jesus will give me a, a better job. If I come to church enough, or if I'm in the Bible enough, Jesus will, will give me a, a better spouse or a spouse. Jesus will give me my fulfillment in my children. He'll make my retirement much more meaningful. He'll multiply my money. He'll give me more friends. He'll give me a promotion. And just like these two men, Jesus warns us that will never satisfy. If we look for satisfaction in things, things will strangle us. Because the more we have, the more we'll want, the more we get, the more we'll think we need. And Jesus looks at the men and says, no, I didn't come to redeem Israel from Rome. I came to redeem you by grace. 
the whole Bible is about salvation and what Jesus does for our hearts. Everything else, of course, is by his goodness. But let's go to the Bible and look for grace. That's the first theme. There's another theme we see throughout the Bible, and it's simply this. The Bible is all about Jesus who came to rise from the grave. Luke wasn't just randomly writing stories. He was highlighting themes, things that were important for our faith, important to the early church. And the second one was the resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave. The two men admitted that their friends, these ladies, had already seen the empty tomb. Jesus uses the Old Testament to remind them that the Messiah would rise from the grave. Resurrection is the key to Christianity, and it's the hinge of Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. Everything revolves around the resurrection of Jesus. Think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. The Apostle Paul, in one moment, switched from being a hardline Jew, a hardline law follower, Moses follower, to becoming an avid evangelist, an apostle for Jesus Christ. In one moment. Now, those of us that have been in church for a while, we're familiar with the story. But this week, I was just kind of meditating on the gravity of that. Think about how big of a deal it was. Paul was an intellectual. Intellectuals, many of you are intellectuals. You don't change your minds easily. I know that because I've talked to you. If we study, those of us who love to study, we love to read books, we don't change our minds easily. Typically, some of you and some of us, in order to change our minds, we study and then we write papers. We submit our papers, maybe in seminary or in college or in graduate school. People critique our papers, and then we write a rebuttal to those papers. And over a period of time, we'll begin to crack and say, well, maybe it could be this you know, maybe my opinion could be wrong. That's how intellectuals change their opinion. But that's not how Paul changed his. Paul was avidly against Jesus. He thought Jesus was a blasphemer. And Paul would, would sentence people to death. He would spy them out like Stephen, the first martyr, have them stoned to death if they wouldn't renounce Christ. And here's Paul on the road to Damascus, and he sees a vision. He sees the resurrected Christ. Jesus steps temporarily from, from whatever realm, the heavenly realm, into the earthly realm, as he did back in Luke 24. And Paul sees Jesus. Now, the, the Bible doesn't tell us in the book of Acts that Jesus gave him all the answers to his questions. Paul didn't say, okay, Jesus, before I believe... There's some things about A, B, C, and D I don't understand. So if you'll give me the answers to A, B, C, and D, then I'll believe. That's not what happened. All he knew was that Jesus was alive and had risen from the grave. He didn't need the answers to A, B, C, and D. He just had to know that he had the answers to A, B, C, and D. And I believe there's someone in our service this morning that you have questions, and you have good questions, and you're wondering about A, B, C, and D, but I am praying today that you will believe in the resurrection. And when you believe in the resurrection, over the course of our lives, Jesus will give us the answer to A, B, C, and D. Another example is the Jews who were saved 
when they believed in Jesus, the 500 that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus rises from the grave, and he says over 500 brothers, probably he was referring to Jews, saw Jesus. They saw him, they were convinced of him, and they believed in him. We read that, those of us that have been a part of church for a while, and say, oh, yeah, that's great, they believed in Jesus. But this was a really big deal. Jews did not believe in two things. Jews at this time did not believe that one man was going to be resurrected before everybody else. Well, Jews believed in the resurrection. They still do. Uh, But Jews at this time did not believe that one man could be resurrected ahead of everybody else before the general resurrection. They also didn't believe that God could also be fully man. And so 500 of them see Jesus knowing that he'd been buried, knowing that he'd been prepared for burial, know that he had been in the grave for nearly three days, and these 500 Jews believe when they saw the resurrected Lord. A common complaint today is that the church concocted the New Testament. The church wrote the Bible, it said. Jesus lived, History Channel or otherwise may say, Jesus lived but the resurrection is legend. Pastor Tim Keller of New York City offers three reasons why the resurrection couldn't be a legend. These aren't on the screen, they're not in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you want to write them down. I found them really helpful this week in preparing to talk to friends. Number one, the resurrection couldn't be legend. First of all, the timing is way too early. The timing is way too early. Luke only wrote about 25 to 40 years after Jesus. And Luke constantly cited his sources. The first four verses of Luke, Luke says there are eyewitnesses that I'm going to refer to throughout my book. And so the timing was way too early. Paul, of the 500 that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that many of them were still alive. In other words, you can go check with them. You can go check with Bob and Sam and Sue They saw him. They're still alive. Check out the sources. The History Channel depicts Constantine in the year 325 AD decreeing that Jesus is God. He supposedly declared that Jesus was divine, and Christianity is bought at hook, line, and sinker. The problem with that is the passage we read, I had no idea Robert and Caleb were going to pick this, the passage we read a while ago for our call to worship was written about 15 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 15 years. Now, that's not a a Bible preacher from West Virginia saying, I was about 15. I mean, generally, it is agreed that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians about 15 to 20 years after Jesus. In Philippians 2, they're already worshiping Jesus as God. So there's no way this happened 300 years later that they made it up. The disciples who saw him rise from the grave knew he was God. The timing is way too early. The second thing, second reason we know the resurrection isn't a legend is the content is too counterproductive. The content is too counterproductive. There's a theory that says the Bible doesn't give you what really happened, but the Bible gives you what church leaders want you to know. The Bible doesn't give us what really happened, but what church leaders want you to know. Now, as a church leader, I'm a little sensitive to that, right? Like, come on now. 
But if you look at the Bible, really, if we had written the Bible, there's a lot I would have cut out as a church leader. You ever read about the 12 disciples? I mean, these guys were jerks sometimes. They were idiots sometimes. Sometimes they made great decisions and the world was in awe of their power and majesty and glory. And then other times they completely botched it. And as you read the New Testament, if this was written by church leaders, I wouldn't have included that. I don't want you to know my mistakes, my poor choices, but they included it because it was what really happened. Another example of that is how the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. You ever notice that? It wasn't the men, it was the women. If you read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it talks about the women. Most of the Gospels name the women. And we look at that and say, oh, that's great. Women saw Jesus. This was a big deal. Women's testimony was not credible in most instances in first century courts. So when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote about the women, if they were trying to hide something and convince the world of something, they would have never included that. They would have said, let me tell you about the 100 men who saw Jesus. No, it was the women. So the content is too counterproductive to have been made up as a legend. The third reason we know it's not a legend, and I love this. I didn't know this till this week. The literary style is too detailed. The literature is too detailed. For instance, in the passage that Troy read a while ago, there's two disciples. Only one of them is named. What's the one's name? Cleopas. The other one's not named. So I'm kind of like, why did he do that? And I learned this week the reason that the gospel writers would include some names and not others was because it was a first century practice, almost like a footnote. If the person was still alive, the time the document was written, they got their, their name included. Which is why Mark includes the name of the guy who carried Jesus' cross. Which is why uh, one of the Gospels, I forget which one it was, includes the name of the servant who got his ear cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, the reason they included the names was not so that a 21st century preacher could look up the meaning of the name and build a sermon around it and be creative about maybe God included the name for a spiritual reason. That's not why he did it. He included the name to say, hey, I'm going to tell you the guy's name who carried Jesus' cross so you can go ask him about it. He lives at such and such an address. I'm going to tell you about Cleopas. Everybody knows where Cleopas lives. Hey, go ask him. He's an elderly gentleman now. Go ask him. He'll tell you all about it. And then there's this, this idea. You'll be told, your neighbor or your friend may tell you, well, the Gospels were good literary narrative. Fictional narrative, perhaps. You know, fictional narrative. Some of you maybe read probably the ladies, Jane Austen. Fictional narrative. You know, beautiful stories, so I'm told, guys. Don't take my man card. So I'm told of things that could have happened, but it's fictional characters. So one theory is that the Gospels were fictional narrative. They really didn't happen, but, you know, they tell some stories. And so the problem with that theory is that fictional narrative is only about 300 years old. It didn't come about until about the 18th century. In the first century, they didn't have fictional narrative. There was myth, and then there was narrative. And you always knew what you were reading. 
When you're reading Beowulf or some Greek myth, you know it's a myth. Like, this is crazy. Even the legend of King Arthur. King Arthur lived supposedly around in the 4th or 5th century, but he wasn't written about until about 400 years later. The reason King Arthur is a legend is because his contemporaries, as far as we know, didn't write about him. And so there's this myth about King Arthur. Who was he? Where did he live? Who did he marry? What kids did he have? It's because like 400 years later, before we have any writings about him, this book is written during the New Testament or shortly after Jesus, 20, 25 years later. Now imagine if I tried to make up a story about Charleston 25 years ago, 1992. Let's, try, let's say I make up a story about the regatta, something that happened at the regatta. Well, did you know that there was a guy who came flying down the Canal River on a purple unicorn, and he flew under the South Side Bridge, and fireworks emerged from the unicorn's horn. And then all of a sudden, he disappeared out of everyone's sight, and it made the regatta such a memorable experience. Now look, I'm from here. I know what went on at regattas, and I wouldn't be surprised if somebody saw a purple unicorn flying down at the South Side Bridge. <laughs> but if I said that, you would be like, no, 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 no. I've been at every regatta, and I might have seen something close to purple, but I, there was never a guy flying on a purple unicorn. Because it's contemporary. This book, when it points us to the resurrection is chock full of logical evidence that would at least cause us to think. I could never convince you to be a Christian. I can't do that. I could give you every reason. I can't convince you to be a Christian. But I can ask you this. How much faith does it take for you not to be a Christian? You see, in my estimation, it would take a lot of faith to believe that we at Charleston should fight the drug epidemic and that we should do something about adoption and foster care, that we should do something about joblessness and hopelessness and depression and, and hunger, that we should do something about the down and out in our society or even the up and in who have no hope. You know, we hear these things and say, yes, there's something in our hearts that resonate and say, yes, we need to, to fight these and stand, stand for li life and truth and justice. But... If our beginning was insignificant, if we just kind of happened out of a cesspool of sludge, and if our death is insignificant, we're just going to return to a cesspool of sludge. My question is, why does anything matter? Get all you can. Live and let live. It doesn't matter. But as we were able to say on the news interview this past week, the reason it matters is because the gospel matters. Jesus rose from the grave. You are significant. You do matter. God does have a purpose for your life. There is meaning to all of this. And one day Jesus Christ will meet you face to face. There is meaning. Why? One word. Resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave. Right now as you sit, let me encourage you 
to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You say, I don't know if I'm good enough. Don't worry, none of us are. None of us are. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This week we have a baptism class, actually tomorrow evening, right here at Southridge. If you say, you know, I am ready to declare that I am believe on the Lord, right here in my seat, I'm believing in Christ, I'm ready to declare that. Let me invite you to the baptism class tomorrow night. We have our baptism here in a few weeks. And you can declare to the world, I believe in the resurrection. Jesus is what the Bible is all about. He came to redeem us by grace, rise from the grave, but then quickly and lastly, he came to reach the whole globe. Luke includes this theme. He, he sprinkles it in from start to finish, how that Jesus came for the whole world. More than any other gospel writer, Luke hits this theme. Verse 46, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are, you shall be witnesses of these things. Quickly, this plan is seen throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, remember what he told Adam? Take dominion over the whole earth. Subdue it. In other words, spread my glory throughout the whole earth. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled. Their selfishness wrecked the human race. But Jesus came to die for whom? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Revelation at the very end of time, John says that around the throne one day there's going to be a people of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation he came for the whole world, and one day the whole world will stand before him. That's what the Bible is all about. What's a good takeaway? What's a good practical application for us in 2017? It's this. As you read the Bible this summer, look for Jesus on every page. As you read the Bible this summer, look for Jesus on every page. How do we do that practically? Well, the first part of that, we want to read the Bible this summer. Some of you have already started a 60-day New Testament reading plan with me. I would invite you to, if you haven't started, it's on my Facebook, it's on my Twitter. Uh, it's also the link on my profile on Instagram. Feel free to check it out. There's still plenty of time. We built it in. Uh, there's about 90 days or so in the summer. This is only a 60-day plan. You can read through the whole New Testament. It's been great. Many of you have made comments this week on social media about what you're learning, how you're growing. Uh, I'll confess, I missed a day. I missed one day. Uh, it's like I said last week, I love being in the Bible to study for sermons all week. But I, as your pastor, want to be in the Bible for me as much as I want to be in the Bible for you. So let me encourage you to get in the Word, whatever that looks like, at the beach, on your back deck, we get in the Word. But as we get in the Word, we look for Jesus on every page. I'll give you one example of that. You say, yeah, I get when I'm reading the Gospels, but what about the Old Testament? How do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? A good picture of that is David and Goliath. Let me tell you the wrong way to read David and Goliath. You ready? David and Goliath. Man, Lord, I, this is so good. God, help me to be like David. 
Help me to stand against my giants. Help me to fight the giants in my life. This is going to be great. Give me the strength to go against the Goliaths. Now, I get it. There's been some good books written of some authors I love and trust. But that's the wrong way to begin reading David and Goliath. Here's why. It's exhausting. It's impossible to measure up. If you're reading and saying, Lord, help me to be a David, eventually you're going to have to recognize you're not a David. You know, there is one David and you ain't him, right? So you're looking at things, well, what is this about? What if you saw Jesus as David? Remember the armies kind of cowered behind him? The army does nothing to win the victory. They're hiding, they're cowering. Some of David's brothers, you know, they're, they're just waiting in fear. They know that they're going to get whipped. David steps up by himself, looks the giant in the eye, defeats the giant, and the entire army realizes... We just won. And then they come out of hiding and they come following behind. I always picture, this is not a sermon on David and Goliath and we've got to wrap up, but you just picture what these guys are like. They're like, yes, we did it. And if you're David, you're like, no, you didn't. I did it. You just, but what a great picture of Jesus, right? We're not David. We're the army hiding in fear. But Jesus looked death in the face and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And so we can live with confidence and victory and hope because somebody provided salvation for us. And that story goes on and on. I'd love to hear the creative ways that you see Jesus on every page. J.R.R. Tolkien had an atheist friend he was trying to win to Jesus. They would take long walks around the university campus. The atheist uh, had a question. He said, why is it that uh, there are no heroes in real life? There seem to be heroes in all of our stories. Why are there no heroes in real life? And J.R.R. Tolkien was able to tell him, well, actually, all stories of heroes are written because way down deep in our hearts, God has made us to crave the hero, the one who saves us and provides eternal life, Jesus Christ. Tolkien tells his atheist friend this, the gospel story of Jesus is not one more wonderful story pointing to the underlying reality. Rather, Jesus is the underlying reality to which all stories point. And the reason we can know that is, that is because of the resurrection. The resurrection was the underlying reality breaking into this world. Jesus Christ punched a hole. Remember this. Maybe think of a book you've read or a movie you've seen. Jesus Christ punched a hole through the concrete slab between life as it is and life as it ought to be. Between the ideal and the real. The true story of Jesus, that's what the world needs. And that's what you need, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, the atheist, became a believer in Jesus Christ when he saw that Jesus is the hero of all stories and the King of kings and Lord of lords. And my prayer is that you'll become a follower of Jesus Christ. When you'll see he's the hero of all heroes, and the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Let's look for him in the Bible this summer. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a church family that will journey together 
through the Bible looking for answers. I pray that you would help us to be a church Charleston can't live without, not because of our own strength, but because of the strength of our David, because of the strength of our Jesus, who conquered death, hell, and the grave. I pray now that as we go into a few minutes of communion that we would see Jesus not only in the Bible, but we would see Jesus in this communion. And we would see him this evening and tomorrow and the next day looking for evidences of his grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.